Well, welcome everyone uh, to this evening's talk. Um, this is the fourth um, in a series of Wolfson Lectures on Diplomacy in the 21st century. And we're delighted tonight to welcome Sir Peter Gluckman, uh, who last year stepped down as the Chief Science Advisor to the New Zealand Prime Minister. Diplomacy this century will get wider in two different ways. One is geographic, as previous speakers have described, in particular the growing importance of the African and Asian Pacific regions and of our ability on either side of the Atlantic to see the world from those perspectives and to understand what it is to be African or Asian Pacific. But the other width is in the definition of diplomacy itself, the ability to operate diplomacy not just in terms of security or of politics or of the economy, but also in terms of science. And science diplomacy comes in many different forms. Technical advice, so policymakers can understand a complex scientific issue. Regulatory advice on, for example, standards or aviation security. Deliberative advice on, for example, slow burning or chronic issues. Informal advice, particularly right at the beginning of policy making, in brainstorming mode. And finally, science advice in crises and in emergencies, such as the Ebola outbreak in West Africa or the Fukushima nuclear accident in Japan. Well, Peter has been groundbreaking across these areas. Following an eminent career in paediatrics and endocrinology, based mainly at the University of Auckland, in mid-2009, he was appointed the first Chief Science Advisor to the New Zealand Prime Minister. I remember this was at a time when the importance of science diplomacy was just starting to be understood in the United Kingdom too. David Clary, current president of Magdalen College, was in 2009 appointed as the first Chief Scientific Advisor to the organisation I then belonged to, the Foreign Office of the UK. Well, Peter took that opportunity in 2009 and made it a global passion. He became Special Science Envoy for the New Zealand Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade in 2010. In 2012, he established and chaired the network of chief scientific advisors across the Asia-Pacific. And in 2014, he hosted and chaired the first Science Advice to Governments conference in Auckland, the first global meeting of high-level science advisors, acad academies, and academics. And last year, he was elected president-elect of the International Science Council at its inaugural meeting in Paris. Peter will be able, much better than me, to explain how science diplomacy works best. But seen from a non-scientist's practitioner's perspective, the most important point is that this is not just about international science collaboration, but about ensuring that science is placed both at the service of and offers honest and dispassionate advice concerning the biggest global challenges, be they peace and security in West Africa, climate change in coastal states, uh, sorry, climate challenges to coastal states, conflict around water resources, or resilience to major weather events. We often talk about the importance of speaking truth to power speaking scientific, evidence-based truth to power is absolutely central to this. Peter, the floor is yours. Well, thanks very much, Tim. Uh, thank you for giving my talk so we could stop now. Um, the transit of Venus is a very interesting phenomenon. It only happens every 200 years, and then it happens twice over eight years in that period. And in Johannes Kepler in the 17th century said, if the transit of Venus was measured from two different points on Earth at the same time, then parallax could be used to estimate the distance from the Earth to the Sun. Something which the scientists of the 17th and 18th century desperately wanted to know. So, Despite a lot of tension between the French and the British and other European powers, in 1761, scientists agreed to collaborate by sending expeditions to two to very distant parts of the world to measure the transit of Venus, the time 
that it took exactly for the, 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 spent the planet to move across the sun. Unfortunately, it was cloudy and nobody got to measure the transit of Venus in 1761. So in 1769, the French and the British, despite just having completed the Seven Years' War, decided again to embark on what was the first true international scientific cooperation. And part of that was James Cook, who's pictured here, was sent to uh, Tahiti to measure the transit of Venus or somebody else in Madagascar and somebody else somewhere else in the world, and it was sunny enough that they actually measured it and got the astronomical distance pretty right. But as all New Zealanders know, Cook, having been instructed to, to deliver the transit of Venus at Tahiti, was instructed to open sealed orders when he was in Tahiti, which he opened to find he had to sail south to find Terra Australis. And in October, uh, 250 years ago, he landed on this beach, or he sighted young Nick's head, which is on the east coast of New Zealand, and this was the third so-called discovery of New Zealand after the Maoris had discovered it some 800 years earlier, and Tasman had discovered it a couple hundred years earlier than Cook, but this was the start of the European settlement in New Zealand. So here was what started off international scientific collaboration ending up being what is a form of science diplomacy? Science being a cover for what was the diplomacy of the 18th century, finding new lands to claim uh, uh, for, for European, uh, uh, European um, powers. So what we have is, as Tim's already said, we clearly have international science the transit of Venus, scientific collaboration, which does have diplomatic benefits, but the basic goal is to advance knowledge. Then we have science diplomacy, where the basic goal is to advance the diplomatic interests, the strategic interests of a country. And in the 21st century, we have to think about the fact that these, that diplomatic sorry, that economic diplomacy is another form of diplomacy that's emerging, which has both a scientific, uh, 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 international science and a science diplomatic component. And now we need to also think about digital diplomacy, about which I'll say something more. In my mind and the mind of Vaughan Tarikian, who was Secretary Kerry and then Secretary uh, Tillerson's chief science advisor, and with whom I do a lot of collaboration and thinking about uh, what is science diplomacy. I think it's become important to say that international science cooperation in itself is not science diplomacy. It may have a diplomatic spin-off, but what we're talking about when we're talking about science diplomacy is the intentional use of science or scientific cooperation to advance diplomatic interests of the country. And so in this talk, that is how I'm going to be using the terminology as we move ahead. Traditionally, science diplomacy was seen largely as a, a, as a strategy for large countries, United States, Britain, the Soviet Union, to project influence and soft power. But what we've seen in the last 20 years is the recognition, and I'll give you some examples as we proceed, that small countries can use science diplomacy to their advantage and do it whether a developed country or a developing country. I'll come back to the other points later on. You can think about modern science diplomacy if we move to the 20th century in three phases. The first phase was the phase built around the great, two great wars and the fact that the countries and the allies needed to find ways to use science to give themselves technological advantage. And the most famous example of that is probably the Tizard mission, which, which was in eight, 1940, 1940, when Britain realised that it was in some trouble and it could not get America into the war, but it had science of all sorts which was going to be needed 
but it could not do it with itself. Henry Tizard came up with the idea, why don't we give it to the Americans? Let them see what they can do. Give all our, all our scientific secrets and see what they can do with it. And of course, out of that came radar, came the magnetron, a whole lot of other things, and ultimately the Manhattan Project. And that was a very intentional strategy of the Churchill government to drink, give the, show the Americans that Britain had ideas, could not develop them, but by giving them to the Americans, allowing America to develop those ideas, there would be value in time for the, for, the, for, the Amer for the British when they joined the war. But then after the Second World War, we saw the, the time of the Cold War, uh, the Cold War and the emergence of a whole raft of new institutions, such as the UN system. Science diplomacy was used quite intentionally to try and reduce tension between the, the superpowers and sustain relationships. Perhaps the two best examples are, are IASA, International Institute of Applied Systems Analysis, which was when Kosygin and Johnson both agreed put funding into an institute in Vienna to do work on complex systems like water and energy and food supply, uh, an institute that still exists now with about 30 member countries supporting it in Vienna and doing work which has become very important now in terms of the climate change and the global commons. The other big breakthrough was the Antarctic Treaty. When here in the middle of this, all this tension the two superpowers, supported by New Zealand and Australia and a few other countries in Britain, agreed to a treaty which has sustained itself very well that the Antarctic would only be used for peaceful purposes, not for military bases, not for resource exploitation, and in fact would be governed by science. And to this day, this, 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 the Standing Committee on Antarctic Research effectively governs science, although foreign ministries have something to do, it governs the Antarctic. There was intentional efforts, particularly between America and, and Soviet Union, to sustain relationships by finding areas of science which were not militarily related, which, which the scientists could be encouraged to talk to each other in, particularly genetic science. And then there was obviously the race uh, around uh, uh, soft power projection. Then things started to change. And with the end of the Cold War, we saw the growing recognition with the Millennium Development Goals and now the Sustainable Development Goals of a greater focus on the global challenges, on the global commons. And we started to see the appearance of roles, as David's talked, uh, sorry, Tim's talked about, of the appearance of science advisors in a few foreign ministries. The first was in the United, King, uh, in the United States, followed by the uh, United Kingdom, then by Japan, and then a few other countries involved. And, we, and the, for, for the first time, people started to talk about science diplomacy as a specific subset of diplomacy when there was a famous meeting uh, of the Royal Society and the American Society for Advancement of Science. Wilton House here in 2009. But the question comes now, are we moving into a different phase? We're clearly moving into a world which is uh, uh, post-globalised but interconnected where there's been some retrenchment by the big powers on, on science diplomacy. The role in the State Department of the US has not been filled and the whole department has wound down. Uh, a new set and at the same time a new set of global challenges is arising and the rules-based global order is degenerating. And so we have this interesting situation at the very time where we need science to deal with the global commons more than ever. Climate change, uh, energy security, water, food security. We're dealing, we're dealing with the breakdown or the potential breakdown of the international partnership for doing it and at, the and at the same time, we're also seeing the rise of post-trust, nationalism, and even a level of anti-scientism. And this is actually a really critical time where you see when science is going to be more important than ever, 
to deal with the global commons, the system for doing so through governments may be in some trouble. And so what we're seeing, is a, I think, is a growing reliance on non-governmental approaches. And I'll come back to this momentarily. At the same time, we must remember that science has also been evolving. Science is now much more systems-based. It's increasingly international. About 40% of all scientific papers are, uh, have more than one country of origin in the authorship. And science is moving into what we would call the post-normal phase. Jerry Rawitz, who's up the road and who's going to turn 90 next week, uh, introduced this term post-normal science to talk about the science, which it, we're, we're about complex science where there are unknowns and no matter how much knowledge is gained, there'll still be unknowns. And the science interfaces with public values and those public values are in dispute, which immediately puts science and public values into a, a difficult partnership <coughs> where there's dispute potentially about the science being uncertain and there's dispute because the values are contested between different people. And if you think about where science operates now, whether it be on environmental issues, whether it be on social issues, whether it be on economic issues, you see these tensions all the time playing. The science is uncertain, the, the values it interfaces with are in conflict, and it's really very difficult. And then we've seen the rise of data science and all that follows from that. As I said in 2009, the Royal Society and the American Association of Advancement of Science started to promote the idea of science diplomacy as a particular discipline in its own right. And they came up with this taxonomy. Diplomacy for science, science for diplomacy, science and diplomacy. Diplomacy and science for science was the reality that we do need diplomats that sometimes help create the, the big science projects. You could not have an international space station without diplomats. You could not have had uh, the Large Hadron Collider in CERN without diplomats. You couldn't have the Human Genome Project without diplomatic involvement. So diplomacy has been necessary for some forms of science. Then we've seen science for diplomacy when it was used in relationship building. And then there's a large amount of science which is needed in diplomacy in areas like you couldn't have a nuclear arms treaty if you don't have science of nuclear detection. You cannot think about proper treaties on on climate change without thinking about how you can measure soil carbon, methane, etc., etc., etc. It's something which is quite complicated. But there were problems with this taxonomy, even though that taxonomy has been widely spread around. It didn't deal with a number of issues. It didn't deal with science and trade, science and aid. It didn't deal with the global commons issues. And it didn't deal with the reality that 70% of the world's surface is ungoverned. It's not jurisdictionally controlled. And it was becoming clear, at least to Vaughan and myself, that it didn't really help a Ministry of Foreign Affairs work out what to do with scientists. There wasn't enough specificity in that uh, for, scientists, for the Ministry to know what to do. And so, in a in some work we did a couple of years ago, along with Robin Grimes, who was then the science advisor of the Foreign Ministry, FCO here, and Teresa Kishi, who's still the science advisor for the Japanese Foreign Ministry, <coughs> we, we, we changed the taxonomy, we suggested a new taxonomy, where we suggested that there's a way to think about science diplomacy, particularly from the point of view of a foreign ministry. Foreign ministries are using diplomacy to primarily advance their national interest. And they do so in one of three ways. Either because it's of direct national interest to them, or because there's a, global, uh, there's a bilateral interest with one or two countries in the region, and they've got to sort something out, or there's a global interest. And you've got a vested interest in the global commons being addressed. And so we took that and we played with it and we started to parse science diplomacy using these terms. 
and Tim's to some extent given away some of it. So I'm not going to spend time. <coughs> the first and most obvious is when you think about it directly from the national interest, you're trying to project your voice, your influence, your soft power, your reputation, or be assisted to do so by receiving aid. And so science diplomacy clearly plays a major role in relationship management in all sorts of ways. And certainly when our science advisors of the government, people like Jerry, our High Commissioner here, would be welcome us, I think, because we were useful in expanding the number of relationships that a country could have. And Britain has done that extensively with the SIN network that's managed through the Foreign Office. It's also about projecting development interests for whatever reasons, etc., etc. Et but there are other ways also that it has direct national interest. Tim's already mentioned assistance in crises. Japan desperately needed real help from other countries, particularly from Britain, at the time of the Fukushima disaster. The technical aspects of treaties, the tension reduction, etc., and now the issues in cyber are very real and you have to think about is this Huawei, Huawei debate that's going on now about protecting one's direct national interest or is there something else going on? If one accepts the view that there's a security risk here then it's about protecting one's direct national interest and the cyber science around this is very important. Clearly in economic terms Governments need to use science a lot in protecting their economic interests, be it in trade or attracting skills and technology. WTO dispute resolution. Most disputes in the WTO ultimately come down to scientific disputes. They may not be set up as science, and the longest-running dispute ever in trade was 84 years between Australia and New Zealand over apples. Australia insisted that New Zealand apples could not be imported because of the risk of, of a fruit fly in the apple, despite the fact there's never been fruit flies detected in New Zealand. This went on for 84 years to protect Tasmanian apples, which taste lousy and are small, <laughs> against the nice, ripe, beautiful apples that New Zealand produces. And we had to take them to, to the WTO trade dispute processes, which use science to show using DNA technologies, New Zealand apples never had been contaminated with fruit flies. And Prime Minister Gillard had to eat a New Zealand apple on television uh, <laughs> in response to a bet from John Key. There's national needs that science diplomacy fills. If you're a developing country, you will have a shortage of resources and some skill sets. And if you're a developed country and very ambitious in some areas, you try to attract postdocs from all around the world to come to Oxford or whatever to help you. In New Zealand's case, we need access to R&D infrastructure we cannot afford. So we pay for part of a cyclotron, which is a kind of nuclear accelerator needed for, for material science, in Australia. We have to give money to the Australians so we can do our science etc, etc, etc. And then there's science diplomacy for common interests. And this can be when you have shared resources. For example, one of the most successful bits of science diplomacy is in a very war-torn area. It's at the triangle between Uganda, Rwanda and the Congo, Democratic Republic of the Congo where there's only 800 mountain gorillas left. And they work closely together to maintain the integrity of that mountain gorilla population. They deal with poachers commonly. They have a common guard system. A lot of very good things being done in conservation all through Africa across boundaries by, between countries that would not normally be working together. There's the uh, biosecurity, another area. Think of the issues going on in Europe at the moment around African swine fever as that virus is moving from the east, from China through Russia into Poland 
into Germany. And where Denmark is actually now talking about putting a fence barrier up to entirely fence off Denmark from Germany because of the fear of this virus which would wipe out uh, the pig industry of both uh, of Denmark, which is of course a very large industry for pigs. These are science issues which directly uh, Denmark is having to think a lot about what to do. And in fact, I'm going to Poland in a few weeks time, week after next, just specifically to, to run a, a workshop on what to do about this biosecurity issue that crosses uh, common boundaries in Europe. New Zealand and Australia for years have worked very closely together to, to maintain a common bound border in terms of our biosecurity needs to protect our agricultural industry. And countries have all sorts of shared agencies. You're about to exit from potentially from shared agencies in Brussels, like the European Food Safety Authority or the Medicines Approval Body. But in, around the world, there's lots of shared services. So, for instance, New Zealand and Australia have a common food agency, which is for regulating food between the two countries. In the Pacific, the Pacific Commission, which Britain, along with New Zealand and Australia and other countries, support provides technical services to 24 Pacific Island states around areas like climate change, fish stock management, public health, and so forth. In the, in the Caribbean, CDMA, the Caribbean, uh, it, which is the emergency uh, authority, does a fantastic job in hurricane prediction and management. And then we have had shared crises. Ebola would be one. The ice cloud from ash, uh, the ice from the ash cloud would be another. And then we come to these issues where there's global interest and where the battle is sometimes has to be to persuade a country that it's in their national interest to support the global interest. A battle that hasn't been won in one particular country we can think of to our, to our west. Um, long way to our west. Um, Climate change is the obvious example. The SDGs reflect a whole lot of other examples, but we won't have time to go into them. And I need not, I think, remind this group that the first really good treaty in relationship to global commons was the Montreal Treaty about reducing CFCs to protect the ozone layer, work that was based on two scientists receiving the Nobel Prize and moved very quickly from that to a global treaty. Here's a good example of something moving from direct national interest to global interest. And being a New Zealander, you can't have a talk without a cow being in the talk. In 2009, New Zealand recognised it's had a challenge. We have... Our economy is based on tourism on one hand and producing milk on the other hand. 55% of its emissions come from agriculture. We're the highest producer of methane per capita in the world. Because our cows fart and belch a lot. And there was some evidence starting to appear of high-end consumer resistance to our products, particularly in Europe, uh, on the basis that of the, of the carbon footprint. And yet, while New Zealand had 55% of emissions coming from agriculture, and Ireland had 30% coming from agriculture, no other developed country had a high profile of agricultural emissions. This was largely a developing world problem, despite the fact that 20% of the emissions came from agriculture. And the science of methane production by cows or sheep or goats, or any other aspect of, climate, of agricultural greenhouse gas emissions is extraordinarily complex, extraordinarily complex, and well beyond our capacity to cope. So on the side of the famous Copenhagen uh, COP meeting on climate change, New Zealand proposed, why don't we set up a global effort to look at agricultural greenhouse gas emissions. And I had the privilege in 2010 in New Zealand to chair a room full of scientists, 
sorting about what we should do about it. And on the other side, in the room next door, was our Minister of Agriculture at the time, chairing a meeting of diplomats to talk about could we make, bring this together and have a global scientific effort on agricultural greenhouse gas emissions. The result was having a research alliance, which New Zealand provides a small secretariat, a whole 1.5 FTEs, but involves 50 countries now involved, I think 57 at last count, Jerry, something like that, with all the major food producers. It was the first place where China and America were in the same room on climate change. Uh, it had multiple research streams. It's all been done by collaborative science, and the science has moved from knowing, having no idea what to do to a whole lot of real ideas that are starting to move into actual practicality. And here you see how the, what's done is the domestic national interest got converted to being a global effort on an issue of global commons. And I think there's something to think about that. Was this because it was New Zealand that did it? A small country, no particular geostrategic effort at, at play. I think New Zealanders find we're often valued in that particular way. Or was it just the time was right? And now we've got another set of challenges that I think are really important. The geostrategic consequences of new technologies. We cannot ignore the fact that these new technologies in this digital world are compromising our national identity and our jurisdictional power. We can't tax in the same way we used to. We can't regulate pornography in the same way we used to. Slander and libel laws have effectively disappeared. A whole lot of ways in which jurisdictional power has been changed. Governments and companies and universities have spent a fortune on cyber security. A new discipline has emerged. Autonomous warfare is there and is growing, and so far the, ability, the attempts to get a treaty in place to deal with it have been limited by the influence by the great powers. There are all sorts of issues about social media and platform companies. Denmark's gone so far as actually to appoint an ambassador to Silicon Valley, specifically. A 20 unit, a diplomatic unit of 20 people, ambassador to the high tech industry. They're treating them as if they're countries. They've got the power of countries in many ways. And we'll talk, and the life sciences technology are going to merge with another set of threats I'll come to in a moment. And I don't think we can under, underestimate <coughs> this issue of digitalisation in its broader sense. What it is doing to the power of nation states, how they are manipulated by each other, how, how or can be manipulated, how they're changing the way our citizens think, how it's influencing the impact, the liberal democracy, democratic profile, what it's doing in lots of ways. And I think here is a space where science diplomacy will be desperately needed over time. At the moment, we've not got there. At the moment, it's still very much a political discussion, like the Christchurch Declaration from last, last week, which our Prime Minister led with President Macron about uh, the limits of live streaming of terrorist events, like the horrific event in Christchurch. But there are greater issues here which are fundamental and which, in my mind, are going to be the biggest threat to society. Last year, I, edited, I authored, along with, with the International Network of Government Science Advice, a report for the, for the OECD <coughs> on the impact of understanding well-being in the context of rapid digital transformations. And the point of this paper, which is short, and I encourage you to look at it, and particularly read the appendix, because the appendix, I think, is one, it's one of those weird reports where the appendix is more interesting than the report itself, but it's only 30 pages long, so it's not long, it is to point out that at every level of society, whether you're looking at the individual, whether you're looking at the individual in relationship to other individuals, how families work, how communities work, how nation-states work, this inevitable progress towards digitalisation 
is changing things. Now, whether it's changing them for the good or the bad or the worse depends on one's own individual values and worldview. But it's creating fundamental changes in things like our sense of privacy, our sense of autonomy, our, our agency, and in the relationship between the citizen and the, and, and the nation state, where the relationship is changing in ways which is putting democracy under, uh, under some pressure, to say the least. And I think that the issue of the application of social sciences, in particular social sciences, into diplomacy to understand these global trends, they're not just within the United States or within Britain, they are global. Even in countries like New Zealand and Australia, we're seeing the same trends. They may not have been expressed in the form of a Brexit vote or, or Trumpism or anything else, but the trends are there. And I think in terms of the geostrategic instability that exists in a multipolar world, if the citizens are dissatisfied with their, with their political masters, then the risks of instability are even greater. And so I think the issues of science, diplomacy, social science and diplomacy will grow much greater. And you've got some very good people in Oxford, uh, like Harvey Whitehouse, with whom we're working on this particular issue. The other consequence which I separate out, but which I think is equally important, is, we've, let's face it, since the first priests existed 10, 20,000 years ago, since the first rulers existed, you know, 10, 5, 7,000 years ago, people in power have always manipulated truth. So there's nothing new about a post-truth world in the sense some people have always manipulated truth for the advantage. What has changed is the ability and the pervasiveness and the speed of which you can manipulate truth. The manipulators exist. Uh, and, and in all sorts of ways. I mean, the fact that people can now have a career as an influencer highlights what, how subtle manipulation can be in different ways. But part of that is to undermine confidence in science itself. And it's not just been about climate change. You can see it with the anti-vax movement of the present time. You can see it on, in all sorts of issues when you go digging. And it's because science is interfacing on the, as to use that post-normal terminology again, with values and values which are, in, are contested, that we see this rising issue. And again, I think foreign ministries are going to have to think about these issues. These are not issues that can be left just to domestic politics. <laughs> I think th this, this changing global attitude, attitude to citizens, how they behave with each other, how they use ad hominem attack, how uh, it will lead loss of trust in, in democratic processes and so forth, and the ability to manipulate it. Deep fakes. Heard about deep fakes? The ability to actually produce video that makes it look as if uh, you know, Donald Trump gets up and says, Climate change is the most urgent and important thing in the world to do. And so with great credibility. There's a video floating around. Jan Mettler, who's Juncker's chief of policy, showed me the other day, showing Donald Trump declaring war on Russia. It looks absolutely real. The ability of artificial intelligence to manipulate images in such a way. And now you start to see how this can be used in forms of information warfare or whatever warfare, these issues are no longer theoretical, they're real, and diplomats will need to be thinking a lot about how verification of, of, of points is actually achieved. The other big area which fascinates me are the ungoverned spaces. 70% of the world is water, outside economic zones. Space is ungoverned. The seabed, people are trying to work out how to govern it. We've talked about the, Ant the Antarctic. And the internet is not governed. In many ways, science is the commonality across all these five areas. The areas in which science 
is the most cohesive, coherent way of thinking about these issues. And the Antarctic demonstrates that what can be done can be done because we've kept commercial interest out of it. Space has been more complicated because you've got both commercial and military interests involved and oceans and the seabed, we're seeing real issues emerging now because of uh, extensive commercialisation issues. And then we come to the issues which I think will bother foreign ministries in the future more and more and more. And that is the impact of new technologies. What if some country decided now the only way to deal with climate change was by some geoengineering uh, 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 technology, whatever that might be, spraying iron filings into the air or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. What if we need geoengineering to thrive and survive? We don't have processes in place that would deal with that. Synthetic bacteria are all over the place. They're still in the lab, but they'll be out of the lab soon. Bacteria don't have passports. So you might have a bacteria developed either for benign reasons or for malignant reasons that crosses boundaries. How will we handle those technological issues? What if somebody has a bacteria that will eat up plastics? Sounds great, but what if it gets into a country that's using plastics and so for their sewage systems and their water system and everything else? Think about that. Digital technologies talked about, so I'm not going to dwell on those as well now. But what I'm pointing out is I think foreign ministries will be to be thinking far more about the technological horizon because these issues will cross boundaries. We have myotic gene drive mosquitoes now available. Can they be released in a country like Guatemala, which is a high rate of malaria? when the country next door doesn't want them to be released. Because again, the mosquitoes don't carry passports. These are the kind of issues ahead. So I'm going to wrap up very quickly. What about New Zealand? We're only 4.8 million people. We're far away from everything. We've got the fourth largest in economic zone, which stretches from the Antarctic to the, almost to the, to, to the, to the equator in the Tokelau Island. It's a very large realm. I talked about the fact that we're an advanced economy, but it's primary sector-based. We rely absolutely on a rules-based system. We have to. And yet we're worrying about the environment we're in. We have a very small diplomatic footprint. I think we've got, what, 35, 40 embassies in, the, in total, Jerry, in that sort of number. Maybe so very small and disproportionately there in the Pacific. And now we have a huge existential threat being ignored. The only people who care about us sometimes are the penguins. So we have to think about how do we actually get our profile up. And we've used science and diplomacy quite competently. So for instance, when New Zealand wanted to be on the Security Council, we had to get 56 votes in Africa. But we literally at that time had three embassies in Africa. We still do. Cairo, Pretoria, and Addis, which was open to help with the campaign. But how were we going to get to the other 53 countries? Well, we did an analysis. We found out that we had scientific cooperation of some form or another with 52 of those countries. And we gave our roving ambassadors a toolkit when you go into Togo, we're a small country. We don't bribe our way to votes. We, our foreign aid has to go to the Pacific, where we have particular obligations. But look, we don't ignore you. We've had five fellows from Togo come to the University of this, and seven come to this, this, to that university, etc., etc. It was an icebreaker which turned out to be very, very powerful. And New Zealand beat Turkey and Spain overwhelmingly on the first vote the council with the whole of the African vote coming in behind New Zealand. We've, I'll talk about SAEI in a minute. I've talked about the other things, but we, for instance, we recently had a nasty earthquake here 
which impacted on Wellington. It was great risk. In fact, we lost a number of government buildings and we were actually worried about things. But what happened over the next eight days was more astounding. The earthquake was a very unusual earthquake. We were actually facing a prediction that we could face a Fukushima-sized event impacting on the capital of New Zealand. The amount of cooperation we got from the Japanese, the Americans and the European Copernicus system as we managed our way through what to do and how to do something when your capital city might be facing a much uh, risk of a major earthquake. And all the preparations were put in was quite enormous. Just want to talk a little bit about this last, this, this little initiative. Small advanced economies. New Zealand realised in 2012 that most of its policy ideas were coming from big countries, Canada, Australia, Britain, United States. And they didn't strip down, scale down to a country of four million very well. And this was particularly obvious in the science and innovation space. And so I proposed to the Prime Minister of the time then that we'd set up a club, which we did with these seven countries, which now operates in four overlapping groups, science, higher education, innovation, economics, and foreign affairs trade, whereby all, it's effectively a think tank of senior policy makers between those seven countries to learn from each other under very confidential environment so that people can say, we messed this up, this is why it went wrong, this didn't work for us, or this is what we've tried. And it continues to be a very vibrant organisation, again, built around science and as the starting point but now flowing into... And so we've got relationships with countries like... We've always had strong relationships with Singapore, and we've had relationships of some sort with Ireland, but the depth of these relationships is now with countries like Denmark, Finland, Ireland, is so, Switzerland, is so much deeper now than it was before, because our policy makers are now talking to each other, not just about science and innovation, but about trade policy and so forth. So, to summarise, what I'm trying to suggest is science diplomacy is going to be so much more important to foreign ministries than it's been in the past. And what Vaughan and I have been trying to do is produce a, a set of a, 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 an argument for why foreign ministries must invest more in science. Clearly this is true traditional science diplomacy. There's clearly a lot around technical advice. And thirdly, you'd be surprised how many people in foreign ministries actually have science degrees and are not being able to use, the, use that expertise as much as they might. And that's what uh, I think this new taxonomy helps us do. I'm not going to dwell on this now because we've run out of time, except to point out that there is a further issue, and that is the issue that at the global level, the UN decisions are fundamentally made by diplomats. At the end of the day, all the UN agencies, it's ultimately the diplomats that make the final decisions. If you don't, and we don't have a way of having a UN science advisory uh, board, it was tried and it failed. So it's really important that science advice is is directly linked to foreign ministries when they're dealing with UN-related issues. It's a vague moment. Just by, in my last 30 seconds, let me give you two advertisements. The first is for the International Network for Government Science Advice, which is the organisation I chair, which is the major organisation interested in science diplomacy and science and policy, and most importantly of all, its membership of it is free. So I encourage you to go to its website. It has about 8,000 members in over 100 countries involving everybody that's really interested in this interface. And one of the things that operates is this division, Science Policy and International Diplomacy and External Relations, which meets every six months and has regular meetings, jointly with an organisation I'll tell you about in a moment, to think about these issues from an academic and diplomatic point of view how science and diplomacy interact. 
but at the same time it meets with the small club, the Foreign Ministry Science Technology Advice Network, which actually the countries that have proper units of science of science within their foreign ministries. It has about 30 members now, and again, it's becoming very active. So, for example, it's currently working on two projects. One is a project on the training of science diplomats. How do you train diplomats to understand science? How do you train scientists to understand diplomats? And at the other end, it's working on developing a set of ethical guidelines for scientists working in transnational emergencies, where there's a void at the moment. So I'll finish there. Thank you very much for your time. Happy to take any comments or questions. Thank you very much indeed, Peter. Who would like to start? Yes, please. Thank you very much for your presentation, sir. Um, a doctor to do Hippocratic Oath to do no harm, is there an equivalent for a scientist? Unfortunately not. Thank you. If I may, um, if we go back to 2003, uh, there is the case of British defence intelligence led by Brian Jones allowing, or one might say facilitating more directly, the deliberate misrepresentation by the British government of the day of the strength of the intelligence, of the evidence for the development of chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons for a non-battlefield use in Iraq. Now, were the British scientists in defense intelligence and more widely guilty of allowing the government to lean on them? Um, perhaps more seriously, there is the case of Operation Rockingham, which is an operation claimed to have existed by Scott Ritter, a, 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 an American UN weapons inspector who retired in 2003, mm. that British scientists, including David Kelly, uh, yeah. were involved in an on-the-ground dirty tricks operation to uh, facilitate a misrepresentation, a misreporting of events on the ground to the British media, to, to, to the British public, to the effect that there was non-compliance by the Iraqis with weapons inspections, therefore facilitating British invasion. So on those two specific points, and the general point, is there an obligation ethically on science to never indulge in that form of politics? Thank you. Well, my answer to that would be, first of all, scientists don't have a, f a, a, they don't have a singular route to being trained as a scientist, so you don't end up with the Hippocratic Oath in the same way. But scientists do have codes of ethics. There, are, there, there is an internationally accepted code of ethics for scientists. It's, UNESCO maintains it. Um, so scientists have to follow that code of ethics. My answer would be, however, scientists are also human beings. And just as there are bad doctors, there are bad scientists, and there are scientists that work within institutions. I mean, we've seen scientists do some very bad things. For example, the scientists that became shrills for the tobacco industry uh, uh, would be an example. Uh, and if you've read the book by, um, by Naomi Oreskes on that subject, uh, you'll see the scientists who've done very bad things in the tobacco and the oil industry uh, hiding data that should have not been held. So I can't claim that scientists are superhuman or super moral. I think what we can see is that in the relationship towards science and diplomacy, I mean, who was it that said diplomats were people who were paid to lie for their country, which is not a fair comment. Uh, but the point is that I think people in different roles have to look to their own moral compass. And whether those ones did or not, I don't know enough about the cases to comment on them beyond what I've read in the media. Clearly there were moral compasses that in the eyes of most people were broken. That's all I can say. Do you think that given the way that countries seem to be queuing up to exploit 
the Arctic Circle. Do, do you think that that, um, that understanding is going to hold? Well, it's a very hard question to answer. I think, why is it held? I think it's held partly because the Antarctic has been a very hard place in which to operate, partly because there's a limited number of entry points into the Antarctic. If you think about what happened with the Antarctic Treaty, what it did was the seven countries that had claimed a pie-shaped bit of the Antarctic that they overlapped agreed to suspend their claims, not to withdraw them, but to suspend them for the life of the treaty, which actually has no end. The treaty actually doesn't have, a, have, have an end date. Now, what's happened to the original few countries, I think it was 20-odd countries originally, it's grown to about 57 countries, and no country's tried to operate in the Antarctic without becoming a member state to the treaty. There are the original power, the original signatories have slightly more power in the treaty than the, than the latter members. They're the only ones who can change the treaty. But, they, but the treaty has sat there. I think... I think because of the nature of the science that's been done in the Antarctic, there's not been a lot of focus on looking for resources. The resources that are there, that have been overexploited, are the marine resources, the krill, the, the toothfish and so forth. And it was a huge battle that New Zealand led, along with the Americans, to get the Ross Sea turned into a marine protected area. And it is the largest marine protected area, I think, in the world now. But, uh, and clearly far more of the Antarctic needs to be, marine area needs to be protected in that way. Um, we do worry about what if a country decide to start drilling for, you know, found diamond or drilled for oil. What would stop them? There's no actual powers in the treaty, I think, that would actually stop it. It's moral persuasion. So one comes down to the fact that the way this Antarctic Treaty is run is, there is there's a foreign ministry representative from each country of the, the governing board, but the governing board works very much under the direction of the Committee on Antarctic, on, on Antarctic Research, SCAR. I think, and so for example, the parties have to agree there's a protocol when a new base is established, where it will be established, how it's established. And the Americans, for instance, were forced to withdraw their nuclear reactor that they had down there for power supplies for McMurdo because it was felt not to be uh, relevant. And there's also rules about how, because all the countries use military support to get, to get their, their, their stuff down there, but there are quite tight rules about how that operates as well. It's held. I mean, it's hard to explain why, other than everybody seems happy with it, but there is a nervousness, I think it's fair to say, one day somebody might, with all the ice mounting on the, on the peninsula, for example, does something get uncovered where resources might be exploited? How the hell would we stop country X doing that? And you have to wonder about some of the bases that are being put up at the moment, although I think, to be fair to the Russians and the Chinese, the reasons that the base is being put where they are is to make sure there's a base in every ex-territorial claimed pie, and I think that's more to the point. In terms of the Arctic, well, you've got a different situation there in that basically you've got the overload economic zones of a lot of the countries coming together, and there's actually a very small part of the Arctic that's actually non-territorial, if you allow for the exclusive economic zones. There have been a number of attempts and they're still ongoing. Paul Berkman from, uh, has led one of the attempts from Fletcher School to set up through the Arctic Council some equivalent of the Arctic Treaty, of the Antarctic Treaty for the Arctic. Uh, I, think, I think the reason it's failing, and, and it, at least conversation continues about it, I think the reason it will fail is because at the end of the day there's nothing there in the sense of land. You know, it's all water or ice on top of water as opposed to the, Antar the Antarctic, which is land with ice on top of it. Uh, but the discussions continue. I think um, 
but the, the economic advantage of the sea route has become clear to a lot of the big powers, the Americans in particular, the Chinese, the Russians. And so I think we're not going to stop massive shipping through the, through the North East Passage. As opposed to in the Art Antarctic, where the Antarctic Treaty has put quite a lot of controls on the tourist industry. There are tourists in the Antarctic, probably too many, but it's quite a well-controlled industry uh, at that level. And there's a whole treaty group of tourist or Antarctic treaty, tourist treaty organisations or something it's called, I can't remember the detail. So I would be more pessimistic because I think the, you know, at the end of the day, when does, when does collective diplomacy break down? when the national interests of some of the big players overrides the global commons or the common interest. And I think in the Arctic you've got at least two players, maybe three, whose national interests are too... Uh, and in their, their, their ethos around climate change is such that it will stop an Arctic uh, treaty being developed of that nature. And you've got also defence-related issues in the Arctic, which you don't have in the Antarctic, because you've got missiles can fly over the North Pole uh, from one place to another. I think we probably have very time for one more. I think Maurice will be clearly here tonight. Yeah. Um, uh, it's one topic that you didn't say very much about, although I know it was a big discussion at INSA in Japan late last year, which was around ethics and around responsible research and whether or not there is potential for international collaboration to, to advance that discussion, for example, on the ethical issues around artificial intelligence. I mean, what do you think are the prospects for international diplomacy, or is this going to rely on national policies to address this Well, question? I think, well, funny enough, it's just come from meetings at the OECD just about that earlier in the week. Um, I think this is a tough one. The reason is, most of the stuff is emerging straight out of the companies. It's not going through the public sector first to put controls on it. And governments have this problem. On one hand, they want to encourage innovation, so they don't want to preemptively put regulations in place. And on the other hand, they want to protect their citizens. So there's a real tension there. We've seen that how late they've come to the party of trying to put some constraints on social media companies around terrorism. As, uh, only, in the only after the last terrific event. And to be frank, that's not, gonna, that's not working through regulation. It's going to work through some sort of moral pressure on Facebook or, or, or the other companies, if at all. I think the problem is how do you put ethics onto private sector companies? I mean, it's an issue that... The International Science Council is working on quite heavily, and I'm currently writing a report about this, and we could talk at length about it. And there's a need for some system. Up to now, we've relied largely on regulators to think about the science that comes out of the private sector, and that's clearly failing as a model. So the last week, no, earlier this week, uh, like yesterday, um, the OECD released guidelines for ethics around AI. But when you look at them, they're so high level as to be meaningless. You know, they're nice motherhood and apple pies statements, AI should do no harm, it should not hurt people, blah, blah, blah. But when, when, it, when you reduce it down to the fact that AI is being used to manipulate what you buy on Amazon or, or what you read on Facebook, etc., etc., the genie is out of the bottle. So it comes back, funny enough, to the first gentleman's question. You, you're starting to see some interesting things going on. For instance, Google scientists have refused to work on AI for autonomous weapons. They, they just, the companies had to cancel the contract it had with DARPA or whoever it was to do work in this area. So you're starting to see some interesting things going on. I personally think we will need international treaties in this area. We will need ways of how to deal with transnational companies, which is so pervasive. The problem is, can we, if you think about this area, 
you've got three very distinctive ethoses emerging. You've got the ethos, which you can say is North American, about a libertarian approach, let the companies get on and do whatever they like uh, and make money and grab power. You've got the Chinese approach, which is not only Chinese, because I think you're seeing the Russians moving in the same direction, of trying to use it in a much more controlling way around their citizens and, and in, a, in, in a very controlling way. And you've got the Europeans trying to lead the way for some rational discussion, despite all Europe's own difficulties, as you see in the, in, the, in the data protection rules, and so forth. But it's really hard. I've just finished a, writing a book on the issue of the fact that technology is moving at such a pace that how society... We're going to need new kinds of institutions to deal with it. I, I think that... The idea that we will end up with laws that are fixed in place to define what you can do won't work. So we're going to have to think about new kinds of adaptive regulations which have experts involved in actually thinking through the issues. The institutions we have now can't deal with it. If you take, take another area, take genetic modification. Countries like the European countries in New Zealand, as soon as GM came along, put rather tight rules around it basically said, we're closing it down. That happened 30 years ago. The science has moved on enormously, and now we're talking about things like CRISPR-Cas9 and gene editing and so forth, which is a very different technology, but it's got caught in regulations that were written 30 years ago, and, the re and, 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 and I think the, the lack of ability to use those technologies is going to cost Europe a lot, it's going to cost New Zealand a lot, and, and, and the politics of changing regulations once they're in black and white is very hard. We need new ways of regulating technologies that move very quickly. And again, it will require a diplomatic approach. It will require transnational approaches. It may not be global, but I think you can see that jurisdictions can have some influence over these <coughs> digital countries, companies. Yeah. I think we've reached the end of the time we had. I do apologise, and if you want to grab Peter afterwards, do try. Um, if, we, well. if, we, um, if we started this evening wondering what was science diplomacy, um, I think we've ended wondering what isn't science diplomacy. It seems to cover almost all the things that are important, and particularly I found interesting is that projection forward on the kind of issues that we will be having to think about in a diplomatic setting that we haven't done for the last 60 or 70 years. Um, and there's an awful lot of work for the diplomats who want to write treaties and negotiate treaties to come, I think. But thank you very much indeed, Peter, for your time, and uh, thank you for being with us.